Sego, and welcome to Resistance Radio. I am John Kane. I am your host, and I am happy to be here. Um, I've got, uh, yeah, look, when I say I got a good show, it's usually because I got something that I'm not particularly happy to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it. So I do have a good show. Uh, but before I get started, let me remind people we are listener supported radio. We depend on, we count on your contributions to both WBAI and WPFW. Uh, so if you're listening in New York, I wish and I hope and I ask that you go to our pledge line, which is 212-209-2950, or go online to give2wbai.org. That's give, G-I-V-E, the number 2, wbai.org, and make a contribution of uh, whatever you can do. I mean, if, it, if it's a one-time donation, if you're, if, you know, if you're in a good spot and you can make a um, you know, a substantial contribution, then of course we appreciate that. But if, if you need to do something that's timed and, and maybe it'll come out at a, a later date, um, or if you need to do something that um, uh, a little bit each week you, or, or each month, I should say, uh, be a sustaining member, be, become a WBAI buddy, then of course we greatly appreciate that as well. Um, but whatever you can do, we greatly appreciate it and we need it. So uh, I ask that you, you make a contribution to WBAI if you're listening in New York or if you're listening online. Um, and of course, if you're in, in Washington and you're hearing the program, I want you to make a contribution to uh, WPFW. And you can do that by going to their pledge line, which is 202-588-9739, or go online to wpfwdc.org slash donate. And that's, uh, th there you'll see how to follow the prompts to make, uh, make a donation and look, I realize that some of you are listening online. You may uh, be asking your smart speaker. You may be catching this as a podcast after the fact, as I, after I, I post it up as a podcast after the, uh, the broadcast. Uh, however you're listening, I, I hope, and wherever you're listening, I hope that you'll support the two radio stations that, uh, that air this program. And, uh, you know, and, and again, help me maintain my spot on, uh, you know, on their grid. And, you know, again, as I always say, I'm grateful for the opportunity to have space. You know, we talk about land back. We talk about, you know, restoration of lands. But, you know, sometimes uh, it's really just about having space, space within a conversation, space within a, you know, a broadcast signal, um, space on a written page. And as Native people, we have a real hard time doing that. You don't see a whole lot of column inches in any newspaper or magazine. Um, and the mainstream media, they may rely on a, on a few of the same voices that you may have heard before, but for the most part, you're not going to hear much of what's, what's happening as it relates to Native people. I've made a, a strong case over the, um, uh, it, not only last week on the program, but, but you know, through, while I, the, the whole time I do this show, I oftentimes try to put an emphasis on something that is almost denied, and that is that our experience, what we go through, is is racism i mean that is really what it is and and you know it's funny because people will will you will understand that we were that we are an oppressed people or that we were an oppressed people they sometimes forget that we're still here uh, they'll they'll even throw words around like genocide and you know they, they they know about the massacres and you know and and the terrible things that have happened to native people but for some reason when we mentioned that these things come as a result of racism, residential schools, <laughs> that we were a singled out distinct people for these laws, practices, policies, 
which by almost definition is, is racism, when we use that word, and, and again, I'm not trying to be in competition with anybody else who experiences racism, not the least of which is, uh, is, is black people, in, in, especially in the United States. But it's not, nobody has a monopoly on this. And yeah, I wish, I, I wish racism could be exterminated, eliminated, extinct, but it's not. But if we don't acknowledge the full breadth of what racism is, then we, we, what happens is we end up having a tendency to only acknowledge racism when it's an 18-year-old with an AR-15 walking into a Topps-friendly market and killing 10 people. I always have to say that, Topps-friendly market, because it's so ironic. And, and that's, that's the battle that we have. That's the debate we have. Because if you're going to reduce acts of racism only to acts of hate and violence, you're never going to understand how people get to that point. So, and my show today isn't to go over all of that um, again, although I will. And I will from time to time come back to this, uh, you know, to this discussion. Because, you know, racism is not only denied, but, you know, by, by a racist, but it's, the, the refusal to characterize a treatment of somebody, and, and, and in this case, the treatment of Native people, as, as racism, even by the mainstream media, or even the not-so-mainstream media, it's, that's where it's frustrating. I mean, we are blocked out of any conversation. Anytime there, there is a conversation about race, you almost never will hear a Native person in there because we're not invited to the table. And... And that's problematic. So <laughs> what am I going to talk about today? Well, you know, we, we have certain battles that we fought for a long time. And one of the ones that many people are familiar with because, because New York State is the highest taxed, um, or tobacco tax state in the, in the country, is, um, is something that we have not only asserted and established for almost 40 years, but we fought the state every step along the way, and that is our right to sell tobacco. Now, I mean, it almost pains me to have to remind people that tobacco is a native product originally. I mean, I, we didn't turn it into this um, commercialized product that, that, that is now you know, such a, a big part of the American economy. We didn't turn it into that, but we did start to carve out a little piece of that, um, that commercial activity as something that, that we could be involved in. And when we started this thing, and again, over 40 years ago, when we started selling tobacco, cigarettes, you know, part of it was finding a supplier within New York State who would acknowledge that, that by delivering product to us on our territories, you weren't selling in New York State. So a New York State stamp wasn't on, on the product wasn't needed. And so New York State a tax wasn't needed. And New York could not argue otherwise. They, they tried to, and, and going all the way back to Mario Cuomo, there was, there was always efforts to, to stop New York State wholesalers from delivering us product uh, without New York State stamps on it and New York State tax on it. But we have always been successful at, at you know, since we started this thing, we've, we grew that business, and part of that growth came from finding not just one, but a, you know, a handful of New York State wholesalers that would sell us product without a stamp on it. And New York State was powerless to do anything about it for many, many years. Eventually, they would change their laws and they would, it would, a case would go all the way up to the Supreme Court. It was called New York State uh, Taxation uh, Department versus the Atiyah Brothers. And, and what the court basically said is that 
What New York State is attempting to do by taxing the product that we buy off of our territories, sell and sell on our territories, which at that time, you know, especially during the Mario Cuomo years, was just they were just brands available out in out in the the free market. They were national brands, premium brands. You know, the Marlboros, the uh, the Newports, the Salem's. You know, all that all that stuff. So we we would simply buy a, a, the, that product, or even even the Canadian brands we w- we would buy e- either here or on the uh, the other side of the that imaginary line, and. But we, so we'd bring that commercial product, that that product that's in the mainstream market, onto our territories because we would buy it without the st- tax on it, and we'd sell it without the tax on it. Well, what the Supreme Court said is, what New York State is attempting to do is to pre-collect a tax that would have been um, generated because we're they they argued that we were pretty much selling it to to non-native people, which is true. And you know, of course, they they try to create these hoops that we could jump through, so. We could still buy product ourselves without paying tax on it, which wasn't the commercial model that was working for us, obviously. So in that ruling, they said, well, there has to be certain things put in place, and it would take uh, in place to make sure that we weren't um, unlawfully taxed for our consumption. And it would take New York years after that, uh, that, that ruling to, to meet a standard which which frankly they never quite met, but meet a standard that, um, that could pass muster within you know, their judicial system. And so after Mario Cuomo got all the way up, I think it was David Patterson who, was, who, who replaced the uh, shamed Elliot Spitzer as the governor. Uh, it was during his administration that they finally uh, essentially successfully shut down. And essentially what happens is the New York State wholesalers were shut down from selling us product without stamps on it, pretty much, almost completely. But you see, we knew that was coming. So we anticipated that there was going to come a day that we weren't going to be able to be supplied by New York State wholesalers because they're companies that are beholding to the New York State. I mean, what he had argued, they were New York, one of the New York State wholesalers. They argued that they, since they had a, an Indian trader's license issued to them from the, uh, the, the federal government, the Interior Department, that, that that license superseded the state law. So they had a federal license to deal with us directly that didn't involve New York State. And, you know, and that's what got argued in the Supreme Court. But, you know, again, in the ruling, what, um, what um, the opinion that was written after the Supreme Court ruled against Atiyah, which essentially was almost ruling against us, but ruled against Atiyah, they said, what New York State is attempting to do stands on markedly different footing than us selling a product that we had um, added some value to, that we manufactured or that we had a hand in creating. Um, and so even in that ruling, which was against a New York State wholesaler, they cited other cases where the, the Supreme Court had clearly stated that New York State trying to enforce a law over us selling a product that we didn't manufacture or really have a hand in manufacturing was different than, than us selling a product or distributing a product that we, um, that we had some sort of hand in. And because we knew that was, the, that, that was kind of the way their law read, many companies, and or I'll, I'll take back, several companies began, native companies and, and native people started beginning um, their own manufacturing of, of tobacco products. One of the, or the most successful 
um, manufacturer of a native brand is a company called Grand River Enterprises with a sister company, which is on the, uh, the Canadian side, with a, with a sister company on, uh, here on the Cattaraugus Territory of Seneca Nation called Native Wholesale Supply. So between that, that, those two companies, and, and essentially you know, Grand River is the manufacturer, um, they uh, produce Seneca brand cigarettes and, and a whole line of other uh, tobacco products. And so as our stores stopped having the national premium brands, either on the Canadian side or the American side for that matter, or, or the Canadian side for that matter, um, more native brands were showing up. And, and one of the, the, the most successful brands was the Seneca brand. Now, one of the problems that exists is as native people, we can assert um, certain claims of sovereignty as individuals, and, and, the, and our nations can. You know, so the Seneca Nation or the Oneida Nation or the Mohawk Nation or whatever else, we can assert that. But the second we take on some sort of identity that is, that is not us as individuals or us as nations, New York State and, and other states are all over us. So when we form a corporation, then the state thinks they can go after us. So in other words, while I might be non-taxable or the Seneca Nation may be non-taxable, a corporation that is, even, even corporations that were um, organized under certain na uh, native charters, New York State still takes the view that, oh, you're a corporation, you're not tax you, you are taxable. So when we try to create um, a business entity that is almost required of us to do to, to things like banking and you know, um, uh, register certain, certain things and file for certain things, import products, export products, whatever else, when we try to create an entity that is, that is able to do that, our tax status changes. So Grand River Enterprises is a, is a corporation. And I think they're incorporated under the laws of Canada. And of course, the thing about tobacco, while we um, take great pains not to pay state tax on our uh, on the products that we we sell here, because that's our that's our regulatory advantage, it is almost impossible to avoid paying federal tax because of where it's taxed, how it's taxed, that kind of stuff. Including if we manufacture on the Canadian side, because in order to import that product into the United States or in any way, shape, or form across that border, the federal excise tax has to get paid. It gets paid as a duty rather than federal excise tax, but it's the same thing. So all of the products on our territory are compliant with federal law, they, but, they, but we still push back on paying uh, state taxes. And not all, not all Native territories have, are have taken the same stance that we have here in, in, you know, with, with New York. Um, some territories have entered into compacts, taxing compacts with the states and that kind of stuff. None of them have played, fared very well. Um, we've never entered into an agreement with New York State. We've pushed back and had our legal wranglings with, with New York State. And it's cost us. But we've maintained that market for, for almost 40 years. For almost 40 years, we've been fighting New York State on this, and we've been able to maintain um, a significant business. And, and again, one of the things that's important about the tobacco business as it exists on our territories here is it's not just the nations that are in business. It has actually been the vehicle, the, the most successful vehicle for us to ride in terms of building a private sector um, part of our economies on our territories. 
in, you know, here in Seneca territory, most of the tobacco products are sold in stores that are owned by, uh, by uh, native individuals. Yes, the Seneca Nation has a couple of stores, so they're, they're part of the mix, but they aren't the only, I mean, unlike some territories like Onondaga where only the nation store is in business or in Oneida, only the nation store, you know, is in business, um, <laughs> at least not now. Um, we, many of our territories, including in Long Island area and that kind of stuff in, in Puspatuck and in Shinnecock, um, it's, there are individuals who are involved in, in, this, in this business. But again, so Grand River Enterprises um, and their importer, essentially, and their, their distributor on the, uh, this side of the imaginary line, uh, NWS, Native Wholesale Supply, they um, had been aggressively um, attacked by New York State. And there was an attempt, and this goes back over a decade. Um, there's been an attempt by um, the state attorneys generals, including the current one, Letitia James, um, to, to not just, you know, uh, put some barriers, but to really try to shut these guys down. And they've been unsuccessful. At, at some point, this native wholesale supply, they actually filed for bankruptcy so they could reorganize their business model to make, to, to offer more protections um, in terms of liability to New York State. So when they filed this bankruptcy, New York State said, well, as a creditor, because they claimed that, that these companies uh, owed them billions of dollars. And of course, um, the two companies, NWS and Jerry, they, they fought them tooth and nail and, and spent tens of millions of dollars fighting them in the process. Um, so what happened just this week, and, and that's why I'm bringing this up, that's why this long story gets me to where we are now. This week, NWS, and Jerry, that's Native Wholesale Supply and Grand River Enterprises, settled on the claim that New York State had as a creditor in this bankruptcy filing. And while the state was trying to shut this, these businesses down and trying to saddle them with billions of dollars worth of tax liability, they settled by paying them like $56 million. Now, I know that sounds like a lot of money, but, but this company's been setting that money aside or some money aside for this purpose if they ever got to the place where economically it made more sense to, to make a settlement. And so it doesn't, shut, doesn't change anything about what they have been doing um, currently. They already changed their model from you know, years ago. So they were ne not necessarily the importer. It was the, the nations. And all of this product was only sold on native territories, by the way. This is how um, this fight has continued with New York State. They still have tried to fight us every step along the way. They've seized product and they've, they've, they've tried to do any number of things, in, in, including going after a company that was formed to accommodate New York State's concern about us selling pre national premium products on our territory. We, we essentially stopped. I'm not saying every store has stopped. They found some stores have found some means to get these premium brands. But for the most part, the overwhelming lion's share of tobacco products sold on native territories from Long Island to, um, you know, to, to what is Western New York, I mean, to the, the Shinnecocks, to the, the Senecas, and to the Mohawks, um, are native brands, brands that are native produced, that again, meet that standard 
that the Supreme Court said that these are products that we have added value to. We've added value to them, not just in terms of um, the, uh, developing the brands as native people, but distributing them, marketing them, because they, you're not going to see a Seneca brand um, advertisement on any place. I mean, I really realize that tobacco, don't, tobacco products don't advertise the way they used to, but you're not going to see that any place. So, so this is the value that we've added. I mean, so not only as a manufacturer, but as a, as a retailer and, whole, uh, and wholesalers, um, as sellers of these products, we have taken ownership, some ownership and some stake in these products. So we meet that standard for a product that we've added value to. Uh, but, but New York State still goes after us. And, you know, and I can't help but get to a place because, you know, the assumption is when a person of color gets into these positions of authority, that somehow they're going to understand a little bit better. But I'll tell you, whether you're Eric Adams, you know, a former cop in New York City as the mayor, you, you realize, we realize as the general population that it doesn't matter that he's black. He's still fulfilling the, the wishes, you know, of the establishment. And that establishment is white. Byron Brown, mayor of, mayor of Buffalo, same thing. Yeah, he might be black, but he's carrying water for Kathy Hochul, the, the white governor of the state of New York. Letitia James, she, you know, she might be black, but as the attorney general, she didn't cut any slack to the, to the, um, to the Shinnecocks with putting up a sign on their property. I mean, she, she aggressively went after them. And she has not let up at all on this ongoing fight with New York State over, um, over trying to tax our sales of tobacco products. So, I mean, even as I talk about things like Kathy Hochul extorting half a billion dollars out of uh, the Seneca Nation over gaming, a fight that we have been engaged with New York State for 40 years still rages on. So almost nothing we do from tobacco to fuel and, and, and I'm just waiting for the, the cannabis and marijuana uh, fight to, to erupt. But gaming, all of it, everything that we do. And, of course, what are we going to do for, for business? What, what we're going to do, we're not exactly, you know, set up on Times Square or, or downtown Buffalo or, or, you know, in any major metropolitan area. We, we have to market our regulatory advantages. So the things that we can sell with the highest margin – and oftentimes that margin is created because we aren't going, we don't, we don't tax. We have a whole different system for public finance on native territories. We don't grab people's income. We don't grab people's, uh, you know, um, money from their businesses. That's not how many, mo most of our territories work. That's how New York State works. That's how, the, that's how the federal government works. Our model doesn't work that way. We, we create certain nation business like gaming and that in Seneca territory, which is the sole source of public finance. In the meantime, the private sector, they, they not only take on these fights themselves as individuals, and that's why you have a company like GRE and NWS, they're, they're having to fight this. They don't have the nations rushing, rushing to, to defend them. They, they have to fight it as individuals. And part of it is, you know, frankly, there is always... As we do things, even as we assert sovereignty, we, we are somewhat cognizant of the fact that we're not trying to place our nations in any kind of jeopardy, legal, you know, or ideological or anything, any stuff. Um, but, it, but it's tough because, you know, frankly, it'd, it'd be very helpful if some of these nations would stand up and fight income tax, not just state as, as we have, but, 
but federal income tax. Fight some of these things that, that the state and federal government are always trying to impose on our lands, mind you. We're not, again, when I talk about the, these tobacco products, we're not selling these things into the cities. I mean, if they end, end up on the streets of New York or, or Washington or anyplace else, it's because somebody carried them there. They, they bought them from, from a native retailer. I mean, unless they bought it some other way, which I don't, I don't know. I mean, we used to do mail-order tobacco, but the state and the federal government shut us down there. So every time we've tried to figure out a way that we can expand our businesses from our isolated, underpopulated territories, limited size, mind you, we have, to, we have to fight New York State and the federal government. So what happened was when, when NWS made this settlement, the news kind of broke, and it made it sound like, even though they didn't necessarily you know, say it, when you, when you heard the news story, it sounded like, oh, yeah, they got fined $50 million. No, that's not really what happened. They settled for pennies on the dollar for what the, what the state was trying to go after them for, for, for a long time. They've already adjusted their business practice, so nothing was going to change as a result. But the, you know, the story on the news says, oh, they had to pay $56 million, and they, and they can't sell in New York State. Well, we argue that they never sold in New York State. Our territories are not New York State. New York State may claim the lands around our territories, but it's still only a claim, mind you. <laughs> our territories are not parts of, parts of New York State. And so when we as nations, essentially, import that product, it's not NWS doing it, and it's, and it's not Grand River Enterprises doing it. So nothing is going to change. But the fight continues. The fact that, that this attorney general carried on a fight that I think started before she was in the, that office, and then, you know, offers these, you know, these kind of ridiculous comments as far as I'm concerned. Oh, yeah, here we go. Hardworking New Yorkers pay taxes, and so should multi-million dollar companies, said Attorney General James. Regulating and, tobacco and, and taxing tobacco is, is a critical tool to protecting public health from the deadly dangers of tobacco. Really, so the state making money off of tobacco is a tool for protecting people? I mean, that, that's an absurd comment. And taxing tobacco doesn't protect anybody. It really doesn't. It just, it, you know, it, it puts the, the state in the tobacco business. Well, I'm sorry, we're not letting you, we're not letting you into our tobacco business. And, and I saw some, um, a study that was done by um, the Tax Foundation. And they did an analysis with another company and determined that the majority of cigarettes consumed in New York State were smuggled. They were smuggled in. So, and it came in like 56% of all the tobacco consumed in New York State, and, and of course this includes New York City, are smuggled in. And they're not even talking about the native brands because we're not smuggling. They're talking about the people who bring in tobacco from, from uh, you know, Virginia or the Carolinas or whatever else. I mean, even if you only cross a state line to buy pro uh, tobacco to, um, you know, to consume in New York. Now, according to New York State, if you bring in two cartons of cigarettes across the state line, there's no tax liability. It doesn't mean that, uh, that you didn't smuggle it in. It means that you stayed below a threshold. So according to New York State, if you bring in two cartons or less, there's no tax liability on that product. But if you bring anything more than that, then your, your tax liability is in, on all of what you brought in, including the, the first two cartons. Now, the problem is 
they don't know how to deal and, and acknowledge that our territories are distinct from them. And, and, and this is, you know, this again, gets to that conversation that I'm always trying to have about racism. If you fa refuse, not just fail, but refuse to acknowledge that we are distinct people and that just perhaps some of your laws, <laughs> they can't penetrate the veil of sovereignty that we've been fighting so hard for over these years. Look, sovereignty is not our defense. It's what we defend. The reason we put up this fight isn't because we have sovereignty as our defense. It's because maintaining our distinction is something that we have been fighting for 500 years over. That's what residential schools were all about, wiping out our distinction. And they were pretty goddamn successful, I might add. So when we are fighting tooth and nail to carve out distinct businesses, even if they are businesses that are well-established off our territory. So, you know, I mean, we're not just going to sell beadwork. We are going to, going to enter into profitable, higher-margin businesses because they're the only things that can be successful on our territories. And we're going to fight New York State or, or any other state and the federal government every step along the way. And that's... I mean, that's our modern-day legacy, fighting the state over our rights to survive and to support ourselves. So when I talk about some of these things, and whether I'm talking about mascots or some historical event, residential schools, I mean, I can't, I can't emphasize enough how much these issues plague us still today. And, you know, when, when I suggest that genocide didn't, end, that it continues, I, I know some people, they just probably just roll their eyes. When, and again, when I use the word, the, the racism word, oh, there you go. You got to play the race card. No, you're playing the race card every freaking day. Letitia James, I don't care if you're a black person, because I got to tell you, when black people get in positions of power, they are still supporting and endorsing and, and promoting the establishment, and that establishment is white. And I mean, so that's why I, get, I have a hard time getting excited about a black president, you know, or you know, or or a black vice president, or or a native um, interior secretary, because putting people in those positions, they don't work for us. I mean, if you're in that position, you are working for the party. Which, you know, so when I, when I hear somebody like uh, Crystal People Stokes claim that her people were massacred on, on May 14th. Yeah, black people were, were massacred on May 14th. But her people, she's a Democrat. She represents the Democratic Party um, majority in the New York State Assembly. So when she says, don't you dare bring up racism to a Native person after what happened in, in, in Buffalo, I'm, because, of, because that's her people, I'm sorry. Your people are Democrats. Your people are not just black people. You might be black, but you're carrying water for Kathy Hochul as she fleeces a half a billion dollars out of the Senecas and turn around and give it to a, to a billionaire white man in Buffalo to build a football stadium. And look, and if I sound bitter, <laughs> then I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sound bitter. I mean to sound pissed because it's, it's absurd to me that, that we can't have this conversation and... And have people acknowledge 
that our experience today, not 200 years ago or 100 years ago, but today is still one of pushing back against racism. You know, look, when, when I hear talk about slavery and we're not even a part of that conversation, Native people were, were the first ones that were enslaved by white people who came here. We were the first ones. We were also a major contributor to the Underground Railroad to help black people escape slavery. Everybody thinks, oh, uh, yeah, Harriet Tubman, she, uh, you know, she was led by God through, you know, through the wilderness to, to escape slavery. Like hell she was. She had help from Native people. It's, it's the only way she could have made it. I mean, unless you're going to hang on that divine intervention thing. But you know what? Even if you believe in divine intervention, how do you think divine intervention manifests itself? Even if you're a believer. It doesn't manifest itself by God coming and appearing in front of somebody. <laughs> if you're going to believe it was divine intervention, well, that, the way that God manifested that help was through Native people. And Native people played a big part of the Underground Railroad. But you know what? Think about this. 1776 to 1865 is when the United States was, uh, had legal, legal slavery. Now, I'm not saying it didn't exist after that, and it certainly existed before that. But residential schools where our children were kidnapped, ripped away from their families, their communities, their nations, their culture, 150 years. Not 100 years, not 90 years, 150 years. And that even still continues in, uh, to some extent in terms of the way foster care is done. In spite of the fact that they, you know, the, a law called the Indian Child Welfare Act was passed, which was supposed to stop that. It didn't. It doesn't. There are plenty of white folks and white judges that have find ways around or just to, to totally flout the fact that the federal government um, attempted to intervene. But, you know, but, and I say attempted because the federal government, when they passed the Indian Child Welfare Act, they didn't, they didn't give us power over our own children. They just, the federal government took that, that power over our children from the states. We're still sitting there on the sidelines. Oh, and we're expected to be gracious because, or, or happy because the, the federal government says, well, we prefer placing Native people, uh, Native children with Native people. So you're still the authority on placement of our children, which is part of the problem. And of course, Indian Child Welfare, Welfare Act is being challenged in, in the state of Texas as a states' rights issue, um, a, you know, an abuse of federal powers taking states' rights away. And to some extent, they're right. Because if the federal government had passed a law that acknowledged our power over our children, then Texas wouldn't really have that case now, would they? So, you know, I'm sorry if it seems like I'm always talking about racism on this program. But it's, you know, it's almost impossible um, to not have this, these conversations. You know, and, and have these conversations demonstrate that yes, Native people are experiencing racism every, every day. You know, and, and I, again, I've talked about this in the past. Look, what took place on May 14th in Buffalo was a horrendous crime. I mean, it was an atrocity. A white boy, a white supremacist, came to Buffalo, actually canvassed the place first, killed 10 black people in, in Topps Friendly Market in East Buffalo, Injured, wounded another another three, I think. And all of a sudden, 
the entire conversation about race turned into this bloodbath. I mean, and look, I, I think there's some great conversations that came out of that tragedy. But how sick is it that that tragedy had to occur for those conversations to even occur? Three days before that tragic event, myself and, and my friend and, and Seneca Nation Counselor Ross John, we were meeting with the, the local NPR affiliate here, trying to have a conversation about the unique and distinct racism that Native people experience. That was, it was like two days before this event happened, this, this, this tragedy happened. We haven't gotten a phone call, an email, even a text was nothing from these folks ever since. We got erased from the conversation. WBFO, the local NPR affiliate, they have, a pro, they have a series called What's Next. It airs twice a day, every day of the week. We have not been featured on this conversation about race and racism once. And this has been going on for three months. We got, I mean, we initiated the, the effort to try to have a conversation, got good feedback in our meeting, and then got erased. So this is what I'm talking about when, when I'm suggesting that acknowledging or the, the refusal to acknowledge our experience as, is, as victims of racism, that is racism too. It isn't, I mean, if, if you say, well, oh, I've never done anything uh, harmful to Native people. Well, if you ignore us, that's harmful. If you erase us from a conversation, that's harmful. And I don't care if you're an NPR station. I don't care if, I mean, and the crazy part is that show that they're doing on, on, that, on the local NPR station is probably going to win awards, broadcasting awards, because frankly, the show is pretty good. The problem is anybody listening to it will never know what they didn't get a chance to hear. They will never know that we had something to contribute to a conversation on racism because we never got, to, got the opportunity. And we won't. Because that's the way, when we talk about systemic racism, when we talk about racism being embedded, if it is embedded so much into the fabric of so much of the life, so much of the, the social dynamic of, uh, of the United States and Canada, then you, they don't even notice it's there. We notice. Black people notice. Native people notice. Brown people notice. White people don't. And you know what? The problem is that Black people don't notice it when it's not them. So Letitia James doesn't think going after a native wholesaler or a native manufacturer to, to keep our struggling businesses alive. She doesn't think that's racist. No. She would have no reason to even think that. You know, Byron Brown doesn't think it's racist when, when he endorses the governor for, uh, or and promotes the governor for, for squeezing half a billion dollars out of the Seneca's gaming operations. Why? Because, because he's going to get a few million dollars out of that for his city. So it's real easy for people of color who have made it in the, in the, the white establishment, essentially, to, to look the other way. I mean, how is it that John Lewis endorses um, Joe Biden for president as opposed to Bernie Sanders? When Bernie Sanders marched with King, marched with, with John Lewis. I mean, how does somebody look at Joe Biden, who is almost the antithesis of civil rights in many ways, 
yeah, he's a Democrat, but Democrats are, can be racist too. And we see it all the time. So when I say, I'm sorry, and, and if you look, if you're listening to this on WBAI or WPFW, you might be thinking, oh no, he didn't just go after black leadership. Yeah, I do. And I'm not even trying to high, uh, you know, hold him to a higher standard. I'm just trying to understand. I mean, it's easy for people to write off, you know, Clarence Thomas for, for having bizarre views that, that, simply, you know, that simply defy the color of his skin. But I also will call out the Ruth Bader Ginsburg for, for citing the doctrine of Christian discovery when ruling against the Oneidas in 2005. So, I mean, and, and it's not because I expect anybody, any person who was ever persecuted or pressed to be held to a higher standard, but don't you think they should know? I mean, I'm not trying to hold them to a higher standard, but don't you think that a people who have experienced racism, who try to move past the, the legacy of slavery and Jim Crow, lynchings, should understand that. I mean, I just, I just read a piece just, yeah, just now on, on Twitter a little while ago. Only black people have ever been treated this way. Really? Only black people? Come on. I mean, you don't have, I don't want to get into, into, again, what do they call it? Oppression Olympics. But we've got some shared space in this history, folks. But, and it's not enough to have some people in the black community understand. And, and I got to tell you, as I listened to that program on the local NPR station, which was, again, it's called What's Next, and it means what's next after May 14th, they, they, you know, that, that terrible day, that, that atrocity that was committed against black people. I would say the, the majority of guests on that program, of course the majority, you know, they're almost all black, and, you know, the, except for some white people who, who know things about black people and racism, but uh, they're almost, and the, the, I think the vast majority of people on that program mentioned indigenous people in their conversation. The host didn't, and the host just kind of slipped on by any mention of, of indigenous people being victims of racism, even as their guests brought it up. I mean, that's how, how demonstrative uh, um, this erasure is when, when it gets put in front of you, and you just kind of, let me move that off to the side here, and let me talk to you about something else, though. I mean... That's what, we, that's what we have experienced and, and continue to experience. I mean, we, and again, I know I've talked about this before, but I don't know how we can have a conversation about critical race theory, which is supposed to be the intersection of racism and law, policy, and practices. If we don't acknowledge that Native people are named in, these race, in, in the racist laws that were uh, crafted to change our lives. We aren't just... You know, uh, you know, there isn't just some you know, relationship causation from a piece of legislation that never mentions us, but got interpreted a certain way. No, we're mentioned. You didn't just rip p kids away and put them in residential schools without having a law, the Civilization Act, having a law that created the, the you know, the, the funding and the, the legal authority to do this stuff. And they say legal. We're not saying right. Because be, to be clear, just because 
something is legal doesn't mean that it's right. It just doesn't mean that it's right. So this is the challenge that we have. I mean, this is the challenge we have. So none of the fights that, we, that we've been involved in ever get fully resolved. I mean, when we were battling, again, when we were battling the next phase of residential schools, which was foster care and adoption and child placement, and they passed the Indian Child, um, child Welfare Act, that didn't fix the problem. There are people that found all kinds of ways around. So even when the United States tries to pass a law that they believe, okay, we're going to take care of you. We're going to pass a law that where we aren't going to allow you to be mistreated. Yeah, yeah, but you're still taking control of our lives. And you're trying to take control at the federal level as opposed to the state. But neither one of you are us. So none of these battles ever get resolved. The tobacco, you would think after 40 years of us being in the tobacco business, that some of this would be resolved. I mean, look, we've already moved past tobacco. I mean, we've got, we got cannabis shops, dispensaries, you know, every, every thousand feet on many of our native territories. And the state hasn't said a damn word other than, other than to say that we had the legal right to do this. They've acknowledged that. But you could bet they're going to try to come after us for taxes or, or, or try to shut off supply just like they're trying to do with tobacco. Everything that we do, even if it's, it's similar to something that, that is done any, elsewhere, gambling, you know, uh, tobacco, booze, whatever, even if, if we try to do it and do it our own way, it's a fight. And that's going to be the, the case for, for marijuana and cannabis as well. And we haven't even begun. That fight hasn't really started. We're still working a lot of that stuff out internally. But it's going, to be, it's going to be a challenge. I mean, when, when we haven't resolved things like taxation, I mean, we never, we didn't pay income. We used to never pay income tax. It wasn't until like the 70s that the Seneca Nation started paying federal income tax. It, it wasn't until the 70s. And why? Because they had a white guy who worked for them. And he was afraid about his personal liability. And he was like their, their financial com controller or something like that. So he just arbitrarily made the decision to start paying federal taxes, and the Senate Nation just, just kind of went along with it. There was no a law change at the state or federal level, or this is federal taxes. There was no law change. Just one white guy. And we have lots of white guys who are hired as consultants and employees and managers and lawyers and lobbyists. We have lots of white guys that we hire. That was just one. Totally changed forever <laughs> where we stand on things like federal income tax. Many of us find every way possible to avoid a federal, paying federal income tax. And many of us have paid significant prices for, for taking on that fight. And I mean people from, from iron workers, the high steel workers, to construction workers of any, any type, of, to, to anybody who's, who's ever worked has had this, had, had, they either had to comply or find some means to, to push back on, on federal income tax and state income tax for that matter. And, but we never resolve it. We re never resolve the conflict. And therein lies the problem because even when we get the state to back off, they don't give up. They just back off and regroup and come at us a different way. 
there's never a fight with the state or the federal government that we, we win. I mean, look, we, we got into gaming. We got into gaming because we, okay, this is something that we can do and the states can't do it the same way. And um, the, a Supreme Court ruling went the way, you know, the Cabazons won a Supreme Court ruling. And lo and behold, they pass a law that, that starts to restrict us and puts the state in bed with us. And they won't enforce any of the regulations against the state. So everything that we do that starts out as a conflict remains a conflict. We never resolve. We never get the state to say, uh, to do a full acknowledgement. We never get the federal government to do a full acknowledgement. Oh, yeah, they'll throw words around like, oh, tribal sovereignty. Well, you put the word tribal in front of it. Did you mean sovereignty? No, we mean tribal sovereignty. What's tribal sovereignty? Well, you know, not really sovereignty. I mean, uh, they throw words around like genocide, and they'll put um, uh, cultural genocide. Well, what do you mean cultural genocide? You mean genocide? No, we mean not quite genocide. We mean, or, or we're going to call it paper genocide because we just, we did it on paper. We didn't actually, we stopped killing you, uh, and now we just write you off. So, but isn't that still genocide? And no, we're going to call it paper genocide or cultural genocide. So, I mean, we get, even in language, we are getting murdered. <laughs> and, that's, and that's the truth of the matter. So, Congratulations, Letitia James. You're on a roll. You're you not only are taking on Trump, but um, uh, and you know I don't know other other big corporations, but uh, you've also joined on the you know on the squad of beating up on Native people and the very limited economies that we have on our territories. So, look, I want to thank you for listening. Um, uh, I might be off for a few weeks in New York, but I will continue to do my programs on WPFW. Um, I want to remind people again to support uh, WBAI by going to 212-209-2950 or online at give2wbai.org. Uh, or uh, if you're listening in New York or in Washington, I'm sorry, or, or want to support WPFW, you go to 202-588-9739 or go to their website, which is a new one, by the way, which is wpfwdc.org slash donate. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, it is, uh, look, again, I am grateful for the opportunity to be uh, on these stations and to have you as an audience. And I know what you're hearing from me is not what you're hearing from everybody, every place else. So um, I want to thank you, for, uh, thank you for joining me and being a part of uh, Resistance Radio. I am John Kane, and we'll see you soon. Yahweh. <laughs>